That's not just a cartoon, is it? It's a vision. It is a dream. It's a hope. Um, In the form of this question, is it possible for two people to stay together until death do us part? Is that possible? That's the hope, isn't it? For those of us who choose marriage, that's the hope. That's the hope that, that by God's grace, we would find someone, we would meet someone, we would marry someone, we would share our lives, we would become best friends, we would do life together until death do us part. There's something in us, in spite of how difficult marriage is, in spite of the divorce rate, in spite of the challenges in our relationship, in spite of all of these things, there's something inside of us that if we choose marriage, we want, we want marriage for the long haul. We want enduring love. We want staying love. We desire that. We look to that. We want, and, and, and we look for couples who will exemplify that. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking of two couples right now, and I asked permission before our service began to tell you about the first couple, and they're here today. Francis and Alma Merrifield have been married 57 years. <laughs> Amen. Mm-hmm. Fifty-seven years. That beats a cartoon, doesn't it? That's wonderful. Uh, um, I'm also thinking of another couple. Uh, I'm thinking of Fred and Catherine here at church. Now, Fred and Catherine, theirs was a little different. Each, well, they were married 60 years um, in two 30-year segments. It went like this. Before they married, they had spouses, and those marriages were about 30 years. And then Fred and Catherine's former spouses passed away. Fred and Catherine met at church, and then they married, and then they grew old together. And, you know, you can, you can write a story of their lives from my office, looking out my office window about Fred and Catherine. Because Fred parked in the same parking lot every Sunday. Every Sunday. And I remember seeing him pull up to his parking space. He would get out of his car. And then he would uh, circle around his trunk and then he would open the door for Catherine, and she would get out, and then they would walk to the church. And when I would see them, sometimes I, I'd see them on their way to the front doors, and I'd go out in my office and walk down the hallway and just make a beeline to greet them because they just lived around the corner from us. And when our older son, Benjamin, was three, Fred used to drive Benjamin and me to Tuscola to the Dixie truck stop and we'd have their huge cinnamon rolls. It was really good. And then Fred, as time passed, would drive to his parking space and 
he'd get out of the car, and then there was Catherine, and but only this time she had a cane, and then that cane became a walker, and then that walker became a wheelchair, and then Catherine was too sick to come to church, and so Fred would come, and at first he walked, and then he took the cane, and then he was in the walker, and then in a wheelchair and everybody thought that Catherine was going to die first because she was just so frail you know and I don't know how many times uh, I received uh, this is it can you pray call and so I would come and I would pray and I mean she would rebound and Fred was never sick ever and he was 94 And then he got pneumonia. And then he died. Beat her to heaven. And then 10 days after he died, she died. (laughs) They were just that linked, you know? They were just that linked. And uh, you've heard stories about that, haven't you? Where couples are kind of so together that when the one dies, the other. I read about five couples this past week who... um, well, they didn't know each other, uh, the couples. Uh, they lived across the country, even internationally. But there were two common features between these five couples. Two common features. One common feature was the couples were married a minimum of 60 years. And in one case, 70 years. Six decades with one person. Wow. And then the second common feature is this. The day that the one spouse died... On that very day, the other spouse died. And uh, in one instance, within an hour, within an hour, the one died and then the other died. And, and how, did, how did the physician put it? The cause of death for the second spouse. It was um, stress-induced cardiomyopathy, also known as broken heart syndrome. Broken heart syndrome. Uh, but that's what we, that's our hope. That's our dream. That's our longing that we would just grow old with someone and love that person and share life with that person and create a legacy together with that person. That's the dream that we have. And for those of us who choose marriage and have that dream, what I want to say is, you know, where does that come from? I believe that comes from the image of God. Our Three-in-one God, our creator God, um, who existed in all eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One being three persons. Don't ask me to explain that. Existing in perfect sharing, perfect loving, perfect leading, perfect deferring, Perfect bliss, perfect harmony, perfect love. So much so that our God says this love must be expanded. And so in the wisdom of creation, our God created all that we see. And and you and I are given the gift of image bearing. We are of all creation, have been made in the image of God. And so when we have these longings and these dreams and these hopes and these desires of of staying love, enduring love, lasting love, I really think that comes from being made in the image 
of God. We're called to be in the image of God. And so, so back to the question, is it possible for two people to stay in love until death do us part? We say to that question, well, I hope so. I certainly hope so. But I don't know. I just, I don't know. And our dreams then, you know, become surrounded by doubts. And that leads us to what I really want to talk about today in our series, Love That Lasts. I, I want to I answer two questions this morning. And the first question is this. What, what makes staying in love so hard? What makes lasting love so difficult? Why is it so hard to stay in love? That's question number one. And then question number two is, just what is staying love? What is lasting love? What is enduring love? That's where we're going this morning. Question number one. What makes staying in love so hard? What makes it so difficult? You know what makes it so difficult? What makes staying in love so hard is falling in love. Really. Really, because you see, anybody can fall in love. Anybody can fall in love. Right? Love is this noun, and it's this, you find it, you have to mine it, you have to look for it, and then you kind of like fall in it, and it's just, you know, this wave, and anybody can fall in love. You know what you need to fall in love? A pulse. You need a pulse to fall in love. You can fall, in less than a minute, you can fall in love, really. Uh, And so, and so we've, in our culture, in our, in the West, there is this myth of romantic love. Uh, Michael Novak is a writer who has written an article titled, The Myth of Romantic Love. Listen to what he says. Romantic love is a Western invention. Did you know that? Romantic love, you know, sleepless in Seattle kind of love. Romantic love is a Western invention brought to us by Western civilization, dating back to medieval literature, even back to the Crusades. This near obsession, supposed key to all happiness, many people spend their entire lives looking for such love, wanting to feel such love, wondering uh, when they are first attracted to one another, if that's what they are now feeling. Most people love being in love. Most people love the feeling of loving, the dopamine of loving. Most people love even the mad passion of falling in love with love. It loves the feeling of never being satisfied, of being always caught up in the longing of dwelling in the sweetness of desire. For so many, for so many, Michael Novak writes, happiness means romantic love. Anyone can fall in love. It's staying in love. That's what's hard, isn't it? That's what's so difficult. And why is that? Well, there's at least three reasons at least three reasons. Uh, And and, uh, one is this. Our world doesn't showcase lasting love, does it? I mean, that lasting love, 57-year marriage lasting love doesn't make it on the headlines. We don't marquee that, do we? Uh, uh, we? We don't hear enough stories of the 
uh, Francis and the Almas or the Freds and the Catherines. That's not what gets showcased. No, no. No, we don't, we don't hear heroic stories of couples who have given their lives to, uh, to the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Instead, we hear stories of, you know, do unto others as your mood dictates, or do unto others until I wear you down, or do unto others until I threaten to quit. Uh, those are the kinds of stories that we hear. And, and of course, you know, a part of it is that there's just not as much dramatic tension there's not, as much dra- there's not as much drama to uh, seeing a gentleman get out of his car, walk around, open the car for his wife, and then escort her to the church day after day after day after day. That just doesn't have as much drama as reality TV and complaining and bickering about the other when the other is off the camera, etc. We don't. Our world doesn't showcase. What our world showcases are people who are tired and weary and exhausted and bickering and surviving. And who wants that? That's one reason why staying in love is so hard. It doesn't get showcased. It, there's, there's no, who's the champion for that? There's another reason. And it has to do with us. Uh, it has to do with the fact that so many couples enter marriage relationally and spiritually and emotionally unequipped, unequipped for the demands of marriage, you know? I mean, think about, think about it just in terms of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. How many of us can say that we received sufficient quantities of the Spirit's fruit to equip us for the demands and challenges of marriage. How many of us can say that we grew up in families of origin where, you know, we were lavished with such fruit to the degree that, that really, that really uh, our marriage began like two, you know, well, apple trees bloated with apples and we were able to feed ourselves and then with so much then we were then able to feed others How many of us are able to say that we came to the altar as orchards flourishing, bumper crop, huh? Yeah, that's what I thought. I did a wedding. I want to show you some pictures of a wedding that I did uh, some time ago. Take a look at this couple. That was in the sunken gardens. Beautiful. Beautiful. There's the cake. Wow. There they are. The groom's on the right, by the way. I'll never forget that wedding. They've split up. They didn't make it. They didn't make it. 
And after the honeymoon was over, and after all the dust settled, One of them came to me so, so very frustrated and so very angry. I said, Randy, I just, I'm done. I'm done. The person said, finally, I just don't have anything left to, to give. And of course they don't. And you know why, don't you? Yeah. That's not designed to give anything, is it? It's designed to take. It's designed to extract. So when you get two people, two extractors coming in, yeah, and then if they grew up in families of origin where that was, in, that was what was being modeled, well, well, of course. Of course. You see? So it's not being showcased. We come into marriage unequipped. And then, and then our culture, third reason why it's so hard to stay in love is that our culture has a very low tolerance for relational pain. Very low threshold of relational pain. And it doesn't take too much relational pain for one to say, I'm done. I mean, I'm, you're not giving me what I, you said and I'm, I was, you were supposed to give me and you're not and because you're not, then the problem must be you and so what I'm going to, what I need to do is we find someone else who will give me what I want, and then the cycle goes and goes and goes. And, and you know what? Of course, of course, uh, having a healthy marriage is about finding the right person. Nobody denies that. Uh, our culture wants us to, to encourage us toward that. But here's what our culture doesn't help us with. While, while our culture is all about finding the right person, Our culture doesn't help us one bit in terms of becoming the right person, being the right person, growing and maturing and developing into the right person, you see. So so no wonder it's so hard. Now I'm wondering when we're thinking about these three reasons, I wonder which of these three reasons most resonates in your life right now. Where do you see one or all showing up. Well, in the middle of all of this, Jesus speaks. And he gives us a word of truth. He gives us true instruction, a foundation for building an enduring, lasting marriage. And he does this in John's gospel. And it's two verses... John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus tells us that, you know, when you see those who have such a wonderful relationship, so much so that you say, I want that. 
I want that. What he has to say is, on the one hand, so very simple, and it's so very counterintuitive. It is so very rare, and it's so very accessible. If the two, the two will accept it. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. A new commandment, Jesus says. Why new? It's not the first time the word love appears in the Bible. Why does he say new? Because his command for his disciples centers around what he, his mission, which is to lay down his life for them and for us. We're talking about self-sacrificial love. We're talking about self-giving love. We're talking about selfless love that seeks the good of the other person first. We're talking about the kind of love grounded in Jesus' own love for his disciples. We're talking about the kind of love that is to be the cornerstone ethic for God's new community, his church, his people. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. In this verse, Jesus is saying that love is not a noun. It's not something that you fall into and it's just kind of, a, you know, you're passive. No, no. No, in a sentence, love is not a noun. It's a verb. Love is an action. It's an activity. It's a discipline. It's a calling. Love is a vocation. Love desires. Love acts. Love decides. Love gives. Love forgives. Love thinks. Love chooses. Love prioritizes someone else's interests before your own. Love is a verb. That's what Jesus is saying. And one of my favorite authors is, um, he's a pastor, professor, author, teacher kind of guy. His name is Paul David Tripp. He's written an excellent book uh, on marriage. It's titled, What Did You Expect? It's a great book. (laughs) He defines love based on this verse. Paul David Tripp. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse that does not require my spouse's reciprocity or my spouse's Worthiness, love, is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse that does not require my spouse's reciprocity or my spouse's worthiness. Now, I just need to unpack that word by word, beginning with willing. Love is willing. Love is willing. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So anything, anything at all that uh, love does or decides comes from a willing heart. Forced love is no love. You can't make someone love you. Love must be willing. It is the willing self-sacrifice. That means love calls you to serve. Love calls you to wait 
Love calls you to suffer. Love calls you to be silent when you'd rather speak. Love calls you to speak when you'd rather be silent. Love calls you to act when you'd rather wait. Love calls you to continue when you'd rather stop. Love calls you to lead when you'd just as soon follow. And love calls you to cooperate when you'd just as soon do a power grab. And love calls you to give up your life and your agenda and your will and to do so every day again and again and again. Love is willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse. For the good of my spouse. Love has the good of another in view. Love is motivated by the interests and needs of the other. Love feels poor when the beloved feels poor. Love feels rich and joyful when the beloved is rich and joyful. Love suffers when the beloved suffers. And love wants what's best for the beloved and strives to give it. Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse. That does not require my spouse's reciprocity. Does not require a, a, a quid pro quo. I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. That's the deal. Well, that may be a deal, but that's not love. Love, love isn't I love you if. Love is one way. One way, love. The willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse that does not require my spouse's reciprocity or my spouse's worthiness. Or my spouse's worthiness. It's easy to love. Uh, It's easy to love someone when they're worthy. It's easy to love someone when they're deserving. That's easy. That's all we do, though, is love the worthy. That's not love. That's not, we're not really motivated for them. We're just motivated for self. Love is at its best when the object is unworthy and undeserving. That's when love is at its best. Love, the willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse that does not require my spouse's reciprocity or my spouse's willingness. That's a good definition. Now, here's the deal. Here is the deal. There is never a day in marriage when we're not called to be willing. And there's never a day in marriage when personal self-sacrifice is not required. And there's never a day when we are free from the need to consider the good of your spouse. And there's never a day when you're not called to do what is not reciprocated or to offer what has not been deserved. And there's never a day that your marriage can coast along without this kind of love. And there's never a day when you can concoct this kind of love on your own. That's what Jesus means when he says, as I have loved you. The apostle John overheard those words and then echoes those words later in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, when he says, We love because he first loved us. God must be the source from which we receive love in order to share love with the one we are called to love. That's why it's one-way love. And it begins from the throne. And it goes from the throne to us, through us, to our spouse. And... um, 
This is so important. So important for me to remember this. Because in my marriage, see, sometimes I experience a love drought. It's a love drought, right? It's a love drought. And, I, and, and so the temptation then is to think, okay, why is, why, why is there a love drought between my wife and me? Well, that's very easy for me to answer. It's because of her. <laughs> that's why. And if she would just change... And if she would just get fixed, and if she would just repair, and if she would just, if she would just, then we would be okay. Hello? And do you know who that makes sense to? Me. It, it only makes sense to the person who says that. It doesn't make sense to anybody else. If I could just hear myself say that. See? And, and if I heard you say that, I would say, that's silly. But I'm different. See, my, my situation is the exception. No, no, it's not. Love droughts are vertical before they are horizontal. So if there's something, if there's, if there's love that's not flowing from me to her, it's not that there's something in between me and her. It's something between me and God. <laughs> because love comes from God. And so if I'm not, if there's not love happening, it's because of, it's, it's God in me. That's what's going on. And so this kind of love means admitting to, my, to myself and my spouse and to God that I'm not able to love this way without his protecting, providing, forgiving, rescuing, delivering grace. So love droughts are, are vertical before they're horizontal, really. Now, let me just get this out on the table here. You know, we're all sitting here and we're listening. And someone is thinking, well, okay. All right. So if I lay down my life for my spouse, if I do that the way you're talking about it, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? See, that's our struggle, isn't it? Pastor stands up in church on Sunday and says, sacrifice your life, be selfless, stop depending on your spouse to be your source of love, to love your spouse. And because we're nice, polite Midwesterners, on the inside, you know, we nod and smile, but on the deeper inside, we say, that's stupid. That's real. That's really, that's just silly. I mean, what if I don't get love from my spouse? What if he or she doesn't return the favor? And then we grow old and then we die. What a sorry waste. I'm not doing it. 
And to this the gospel says that God sent his son to pay for my sin crimes against him. The gospel says that Jesus received my sentence for sin, a sentence which satisfied the justice of God, which is an act of love. It's something that he did for me to turn away the incinerating blast of God's justice, which would have just incinerated me had he not taken it for me. And Christ's literal bodily resurrection eyewitness attested raising from the grave proves that his death was in fact sufficient and that there is life beyond this life and there's hope beyond the grave. It proves that his death on the cross was not for nothing. The scripture says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. God the Son totally trusted God the Father that he would bring him back from the dead to reign in heaven. And so our risen king says, die in Christ and on the day I will raise you up. I will give you a resurrection body in the likeness of my own self. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. And anybody with that kind of power can give you the power to love someone that God wants you to love and cherish. What do you get What do you get? Let me tell you what you get. You get in Christ abundant, overflowing, supernatural love, enough, sufficient for yourself, and enough to share. That's what you get. And I'll tell you what else you get. You get the privilege, the privilege of sharing this love with another image bearer your spouse, a, an heir of the coming eternal kingdom. That's what you get. And that's the best deal we're ever going to get, really. Someone once said, there are no right people. There are no right people. There are only wrong people pretending to be right or wrong people being made right by Jesus. Love is a verb. And this takes us to verse 35. Because when we bend love to the people in our lives, our spouses and our family, in our relationships, when we bend his, when when we bend his love to the people in our lives, the face of Jesus appears, and people see that we belong to Him. Verse thirty-five: By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is a verb. So, so you see, the the most important reason to let love flow from God through you. To your spouse. The most important reason is not so you can have a happy marriage. It's really not. And it's not so that you can have a satisfied life. It's really not. It's not even for the children. No, no. The most important reason to let love flow from God through me to my spouse is so that my world, my nation, 
my city, my neighborhood, my family, my friends, my spouse might see the face of Christ through my life. The splendor and the beauty and the majesty, the glory of the risen Christ, that's the goal of marriage. It's not... The goal of marriage is not so others can say, wow, Sarah, what a peach of a guy you married. That's not the goal of marriage. It's not. The goal of marriage is, wow, what a spouse you have. Now, who is it you worship? Tell me more about the God you worship. That's the goal. It's, keep saying to yourself, it's not about me. It's about him. It's about Christ. And that changes everything. It really does. You know, at some point, you just have to realize that you just cannot make your spouse change. You can't. I can't even change myself by myself. How am I going to expect it? If your happiness is contingent on your spouse's performance or the ability to control your spouse, you are doomed to a dungeon of frustration and hopelessness. And when you're tempted to believe that the only thing that stands between you and all you want in marriage is your spouse, God has a better invitation. He's got a better offer. God offers something better than you changing your spouse. He promises to change you. He promises to give himself to you. And this doesn't mean that your spouse may never change. It's just that whether or not your spouse changes, God invites you to play a part in the most important program in history, and that is the program of letting God live inside of you so that he might become visible to this broken world. That is the most important program in history. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Love is a verb. The willing self-sacrifice for the good of my spouse that does not require my spouse's reciprocity or my spouse's willingness. So I've talked to you about Francis and Alma and I've talked to you about Fred and Catherine and now I'm going to talk to you about Roger and Becky. I don't even know them. But listen to their story. Roger began to suffer from early onset Alzheimer's. And they used to journal one another. You know, prayer journals. Sometimes they'd write their prayers and sometimes then they would write notes to each other in a journal. Roger's wife, Becky, remembers a journal entry he left for her after a particularly troubling bout of forgetfulness. Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life we share will be gone. In fact, you and the boys will be gone from me. I will lose you even as I am surrounded by you and your love. I don't want to leave you. I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and so painfully. 
Becky picked up the pen. And blinking back tears, this is what she wrote. My sweet husband, what will happen when we get to the point where you no longer know me? I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you, not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me. I will remember the man who told me he loved me. I will remember the look on his face when his children were born. I will remember the father he was. I will remember the way he loved our extended family. I will remember his love for writing and hiking and reading. I will remember his tears at sentimental movies. I will remember the unexpected witty remarks. I will remember how he held my hand while he prayed. I cherish the pleasure, the obligation, the commitment, and the opportunity to care for you because I remember you. Let's pray.